Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this fantastic episode, we consider the contents of Starlog Magazine from 1979 in issues 19 and 20. Derek 3X fills us in on how Karen Jensen feels about portraying Athena on Battlestar Galactica. Scott Allen Evans reminisces about the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings animated movie. Mark Newbold considers the Star Wars Holiday Special. Shane Poole fills us in on Jerry Anderson's Space 1999 report. Billy Hogan gets us ready for the new Superman movie. Steve Jonas and Michael Bailey discuss Superman the movie. All this, plus Buck Rogers, Han Solo's Kessel Run, and more. On this episode of... Star Pod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hoorah, tally-ho. Hey, my little Georgie Peach. Hey, Pud. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we lean the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, Star Pod Trek. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We will be attending the grandest of them all. Dragon Con! I know you are pumped for Dragon Con this year. This will actually be my 30th Dragon Con. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, that is epic. 30 years that you've been attending Dragon Con. That's pretty amazing. What's the difference between Dragon Con now than the first one that you attended? Well, of course it's grown a lot. But, it, I mean, the first one I attended, I think at that time, it, it was actually the largest convention I had been to, even though it was like, it was only in one hotel back then. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was mostly a comic book gaming type of convention. Which... For years, that's what I always thought Dragon Con was. I remember seeing it advertised in Starlog magazine. So when it grew into this massive behemoth that was a series of conventions within a giant convention, I was totally negligent that it grew to that colossal size. Because you said it did have humble beginnings. Most definitely. So it just kept expanding. They they kept adding more tracks, you know, the fan tracks. Mm-hmm. Star Trek... The Trek Track might have been the first fan track. I mean, it was the first one that I was aware of, of course, because mm-hmm. I was so excited to find out about that. Mm-hmm. But and Dragon Con uh, now is just everything you could think of. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's full media now, not really mm-hmm. just sci-fi and fantasy. Sure. Well, we will be presenting two panels on the Star Trek track, and also I will be moderating a panel on the comic book track. And it will be interviewing creators from IDW Comics. So we hope to meet more of our listeners there. Also coming up, we are excited at the end of October to attend Music City Multicon, October 29th through 31st. It's essentially a video game convention and so much more. Because we used to go to it. I mean, talking about how Dragon Con started out smaller and grew, same thing with Music City Multicon. 
it used to be at a smaller area, and now it's going to be at a large expo center. Sounds awesome. Yeah, we've been going for years, and we look forward to attending this year as well. Starlog Magazine, issue number 19, cover date February 1979. Communications. Sean McDonald of Sterling Heights, Michigan, writes to Starlog and asks, My friend says Buster Crab, alias Flash Gordon, is alive and about to make a movie, but I say he's dead. Would you please tell if he's if he's dead or alive? See, this was life before the internet. <laughs> you couldn't type into IMDb or Wikipedia to find out if someone was alive or dead. And but we, as Buck Rogers fans, we know the answer to that, don't we? He was alive. Yeah, he was in the Buck Rogers pilot episode because he played both Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon in the serials. So they invited him back to play a role in the Buck Rogers. What Gil Gerard calls it, motion picture. So this writer still must have been, well, he must know that he must have known that Buster Crab was old. I mean, that's Absolutely, why he asked. Absolutely, of course. Yes. Starlog responds by saying the legendary Buster is alive and well and living in Arizona. Question comes in from David Mondo of Morgan Hill, California. I was recently watching an old episode of Irwin Allen's Lost in Space, and I saw the credits. Music by Johnny Williams. I would like to know if it's the same Johnny Williams that wrote and conducted the themes of Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes, it was. (laughs) I was surprised to find that out, too, actually. Isn't that so funny, though? Uh, He also wrote, I think that's funny, the name Johnny Williams. He wrote the theme to Time Tunnel, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and Land of the Giants. Also, he scored... The music for Towering Inferno, The Fury, and Earthquake, all before Star Wars, and Jaws, and Close Encounters. I mean, isn't it amazing, the, the, the music j- that John Williams has created? This is even before he did Raiders of the Lost Ark and everything else that we've, we've seen afterwards. It's amazing. He, he was actually, he's actually been around a long time. And of course, if you see him, you, you do know that he's old, but you just, like, we never realized, oh, he was a working composer before Star Wars in the 70s. To that extent, absolutely, yes. Working on major productions. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Close encounters of the third kind flies again. The hottest project currently afoot in Hollywood these days is the remaking of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Okay, I think that is insane. Because they're saying that because of Steven Spielberg's involvement with an up-and-coming George Lucas-produced science fiction adventure, he plans on filming a sequel, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, but it's been delayed. So that never got made, right? Never got made. (laughs) Wild that they were thinking about that, huh? Yeah, but, I mean, Steven Spielberg was doing other things. He was making, what, Poltergeist and Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. And that's the big, that was the big deal, was uh, the combination of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. When they were, they've been working on Raiders of the Lost Ark for some time before it got released. Totally. That would that was like the the, the yeah. winning combination of that time when you heard those two names were going to be working on a project together. 
Oh, I remember thinking, yeah, yeah. back then that it was huge. So, so we're glad that we got that instead of Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. <laughs> Battle of the Planets explodes on TV. During the 1960s, America was besieged by a horde of fully animated science fiction shows from Japan. That sure was the case. Things like Astro Boy. I remember, like, Ultraman and Space Giants totally. in the 70s. Yeah. Absolutely. Battle of the Planets, I remember watching that as a kid. I had no idea that it was a Japanese show that came to the United States. I, d I guess I just didn't think about it as such. I mean, for kids, you, yeah, you, like, you're not really thinking in that way. But, but I do remember watching Space Giants, and, like, you could tell that the voices were dubbed by the way they're, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess and... that, that, but Battle of the Planets had the voice acting of Casey Kasem. Wow. And we knew him from not only the Batman animated series, but also America's Top 40. And Scooby-Doo. Totally. <laughs> Well, it was America's, oh, well, I'm thinking America's top 10 on TV, but yeah, the top 40 was on the radio. Yeah. Yes. Hi, this is Gil Gerard. I played Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Cavora's beautiful. And you're listening to Star Pod Log. Buck Rogers is back. All right, this is an article by David Houston talking about the production of this new motion picture that would be coming out. It would revamp, it would bring up to date the classic science fiction character, Buck Rogers. And it's interesting that it says, a new version of this comic strip tale was commissioned in the spring of 1977. Now, it's worthwhile noting that time period, because we keep hearing that because of Star Wars, all these TV shows and movies came out. But we know that this idea, the script was going into production while Star Wars was just about to get to the movie theaters or the moment it hit the movie theaters before it became a big hit. So that is interesting to know. And I would think that it was influenced by by Star Trek being so successful in reruns. Yes. Now, now we know that it did make a movie. It was supposed to go to TV, but they decided to make an emotion picture because of the success of Star Wars. Now, now that makes sense to me. Yes. But ideally, they wanted it to be – if there was no Star Wars, it would have gone straight to television. Now, I never saw it in the movie theaters. I only knew it as a TV show. What about you? I – yeah, I didn't see it in movie theaters either. That Again, it was just because it was at a time when my parents never took me to see movies. Now, when they asked executive producer Glenn A. Larson about the casting for Buck Rogers, he actually thought that Gil Gerard was perfect for the part. He wanted someone that was a wisecracking all-American hero type. When Gil Gerard's agent called him and said, you got to read this script, Gil Gerard looked it over and he thought it was dynamite because there was humor in the character. Now, what do you think about that, that Gil Gerard liked the humorous parts of buck rogers i guess it's just what he was looking for and it's good that he wanted to he wanted to um not be so serious i mean it was just it must have been like just the, the kind of part he was looking for at the time because i know actors like different things you know and maybe it's like well i've never done that before i want to try that gil gerard goes on to say that he actually got into acting to break away 
from the stiff field that he was in. We know that he was a scientist. I mean, think about that, how crazy that is, that, that he actually worked in this professional field, but he wanted to do something that was more fun. And he looked at this script, and he loved the line when he kissed Princess Ardala's hand, and he says, Princess, I never forget a knuckle. <laughs> yeah. He thought that that line was fantastic. And Erin Gray had to wince. She said, and I'm standing there looking on and groaning at the corniness of the retort. She said it was wonderful. So she got a kick out of the comedy in the show as well. That's interesting. I know she wanted her character to be more intelligent, of course. Which I think that in order to show that she was the more serious-minded intellectual on the show, you had to have someone like Buck Rogers that was more playful. Well, the thing is, in the in the pilot, Wilma was very stiff and serious, and and she kind of she loosened up a little bit more on the show. Yeah, she had more humor on the series, but in the in the pilot, she was just very serious, and she was the one who was the military and and was suspicious of Buck. Mm-hmm. But I think the character of Buck Rogers, in a lot of way, it fits Gil Gerard because seeing him at cons. Unless it's intentional, you know, that he kind of acts like Buck. He does kind of act, you know, kind of hammy and humorous in person. And and it's very much like Buck Rogers. And the article goes on to say that Gil Gerard was a fan of Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers in the comics. That he actually went to school in Little Rock, Arkansas, majored in mathematics, minored in chemistry and biology. So he was the type of person that read science fiction, but lived the life of science fact. Yeah, that's cool that he was a brainy guy, and it also says that he liked Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he could be on Big Bang Theory, one of those guys, you know? <laughs> totally. He said he absolutely loved reading the Dune books. I mean, that's one of the things I love reading about these Starlog articles, is you're getting information that you could never get out of any other media of this time. If there was an article in TV Guide about Gil Gerard, it's minimal comments about what his total background was. This is just absolutely incredible to see. And he, he's going on and on about how he loved Dune, but he didn't care about Dune Messiah because of the direction that it was going. I mean, you can nerd out with Gil Gerard. And that's one of the fun things that seeing him at Dragon Con every year is the fact that he gets it. He's one of us. Most definitely. I think he enjoys being there. Even Erin Gray was familiar with the Dune books because she said that she saw the connections between Star Wars and Dune. Yeah, we, we've talked about that before, the connections. Yes, totally. But to, to know Erin Gray is a nerd, too? <laughs> Another one that we see regularly at Dragon Con. Yeah, and she's a really neat person, too. So that, that's great that she's a sci-fi fan. Now, they did mention the fact that there is an audacity that George Lucas was suing Glenn Larson because George Lucas thought that Battlestar Galactica looked too much like Star Wars. And Gil Gerard had to take sides with Glenn Larson about this. But yeah, I mean, Battlestar Galactica, you know it was created because of Star Wars. But I understand the um, the idea of copyrights and how they had to, they had to change enough so that it wasn't too similar to it. Yeah, Gil Gerard is quipping about this. He said, Fox acts like... They did the ultimate science fiction film, and no one has the right to do another one. <laughs> right, and 
Science fiction can be done in lots of ways, and of course everybody has the right to do it, right? And Gil's defense is, you know, Buck Rogers has been around for decades. The, the character, the story, of yes. Of course, science yes. fiction has been done before, and he's excited mm-hmm. to be able to do it again and to a different audience this time. I like how he expresses the difference with his Buck Rogers to previous ones. He says, in Buck Rogers, we have people's imaginations telling us what the world would be like 500 years in the future. This is a realistic idea, Glenn Larson's idea about the hopes of the world, and that's incredible. It's interesting to say that, because when you look at the show Buck Rogers... It, it wasn't as hopeful for the future. Not at all. <laughs> and and this is where Aaron Gray jumps in and says, but you do realize that the show says that a Holocaust is inevitable. <laughs> Remember, Buck comes back to Earth after the world has been destroyed by war. Exactly. I mean, at least humans are still alive, and, and now they have space travel. So <laughs> in, in some ways they're... They're having a good time. And look at the positivity of Gil Gerard. He says, yes, we have made tragic mistakes, but now we want to see a new world built on good faith. And Buck comes in and shows them how to have good faith. So, I mean, I think it's really intriguing to look at his attitude. This is before anyone saw the Buck Rogers movie, that he was hopeful that this was going to be a positive I'd say, dare say, Star Trek-like vision of the future. What we got was very different, though. (laughs) Not complaining. But that's the way he looked at the series. And it's good that he went into it that way. And I think he tried to play the part that way, that that Buck saw some good in it, even though he kept saying it, you know, that it wasn't like the time he was from. But he he still enjoyed it. I mean, you can tell he was having fun. Absolutely. My name is Derek 3X. I'm commenting on the article in Starlog Magazine entitled Marin Jensen, Adama's Daughter Grows Up. Um, interview with uh, Marin Jensen talking about her character, Athena. Of course, as we know, she was originally the main female in Battlestar Galactica, being that she was Commander Adama, played by Lauren Green's daughter. Um, the article begins about commenting on how women were portrayed in sci-fi before her time, before she started on Battlestar Galactica, and how Marin Jensen wanted to um get away from that stereotype. Initially, she was saying in one one paragraph in the article, and I'm quoting it, lounging in her West Coast home, the outspoken young actress reflects on her highly touted involvement with screen SF, which is sci-fi. She's quote, she says, in quote, I think it would be kind of nice to be considered a sci-fi heroine. I guess that's how she felt when, I guess, when she first started. But um, she also says, you know, because she start just beginning, I can't. I just can't relate to all of that yet because everything is so new to me. I just go and do my job and go home. End quote. I guess you know she just she was. I guess at that time because she was so new, she wanted to learn more. And I guess um, in in many ways, she um, you know as you know, Athena's 
almost like the daddy's girl being that she was Adama's only daughter. And at the same time, her on and off again relationship with Starbuck in the beginning. And everybody knows Starbuck is a big player. <laughs> anyway, um, cause when all this was going on, I was, um, I was only, when the show started, I was only seven years old. I'm, I'm, and I'm 50 now. And I was, and I, you know, being the seven year old I was, I was looking forward to watching the show. She kind of comments on, you know, certain things that she, you know, do. She, most of that, like many actors, a lot of that stuff goes on the, on the editing floor, as they call it. Well, in any, in overall, I got, like I said, when this, when this article was written, this was during the beginning of, um, her time on the beginning of Galactica period. I'm judging by the way the article is written. Well, and like I said, to my mem, most of my memories of it is, like I said, I'm a, I was just a seven year old waiting for this show to come on. In addition to Apollo, Adama, and Starbuck and Boomer, and Ty. One of my favorites is, is, was a, was a thing, however brief her role was, but, um, the, um, the shining episode was the, the second after the, the, um, the second episode after the, the three hour pilot movie. That was the first, um, episode I watched, Lost Planet of the Gods. And initially, what really caught my eye was another character only made one appearance which was in that very episode um that character was was tr- was training with um athena as uh, from a shuttle pilot to a viper pilot um and i and she caught my eye even more than athena as beautiful as she was her name was um lieutenant Dietra. she's the black um lady on viper pilot but that i sh- i think i should reserve for another commentary but overall, um, I guess it was just um, mostly how Marin Jensen, as Athena, was, was you know get trying to find a footing in the in the whole sci-fi genre, particularly in Battlestar Galactica. But um, how it turned out is a totally different story. Like I said, Galactica was one of my favorites um, as a seven-year-old, and here I am, a fifty-year-old um, grandfather. <laughs> David Gerald's State of the Art, a parsec in a pear tree, or what makes Kessel run. All right, now this is a curious article because it breaks down the, well, we might say the flub in the original Star Wars movie. Now we know that Star Wars is a subsection of science fiction, often referred to as space fantasy. The or bulk, space opera. Space yeah. opera. There's... I mean, because there's so many scientific flaws in it, and hardcore science fiction fans of the 70s really did not like Star Wars because it had so many problematic areas in which the laws of physics were just tossed away. It it wasn't really that scientific. It was more about the story. Exactly. So now here is an analysis of the famous Han Solo line about the Millennium Falcon. Makes the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. That brought up a huge discussion amongst science fiction fans. What is the deal with this guy? Does Han Solo not know that a parsec is a unit of measurement? 
it is 3.26 light years. Essentially, that's like Han Solo saying, if he were driving from Nashville to New York, that, well, my car can make New York in less than 20 miles. You'd say, what in the world are you talking about? (laughs) You're supposed to say how long it will take you, not the distance it will take you. And this distance is doesn't even make sense. So, Yeah, and people are still talking about it today. But this is an article from 79. I mean. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at it and to analyze. Did he purposely make this flub? Did the actor mess it up? Did the writers mess it up? Is a parsec not a unit of measurement in the Star Wars universe? So let's actually break down. Let's see. Was parsec designed to be that line? It's amazing that David Gerald can write a whole article about that, about one line in a movie. Multiple pages, of course. All right, so we're going to open up the original pressing of Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Skywalker by George Lucas. So this is the novelization of the motion picture. And in the book, Han Solo states, It's the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 standard time parts. Hmm. So... Originally, George Lucas did understand that a parsec is different. This is 12 standard time parts. That's some kind of gibberish in the Star Wars universe. We could deal with that. But even that phrasing, 12 standard time parts, is kind of odd. Yeah, that sounds like like, like you really want to um, come up with a new word, but you can't think of the word right now. So you exactly. say time parts. In the English language, we know what a parsec is. So that's the problem with science fiction fans, in this. Here is some of the things that people have come up with to answer why Han Solo used Parsec erroneously. One fan wrote that Parsec could be a colloquialism that subsequently changed by the printer or the typist. Blame them, but not Lucas. But then the question comes up with, if George Lucas was the director... Wasn't he there when they shot the scene? Couldn't George Lucas have corrected Harrison Ford? Another fan suggested, Because three-dimensional space as we know it is curved, travel through hyperspace must involve a different set of geometric conditions. Ships traveling through hyperspace are traveling through a narrower curve than they would through normal space. Thus, Han Solo's remark that he made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, he was bragging that he found a shallower and perhaps more dangerous arc through hyperspace. I think that's more the way I pictured it, that that somehow it it was about distance in some way, because you don't know what the Kessel Run is either. I think that's the beauty of the original Star Wars. There are so many references to the past that we know that this is a lived-in universe. We just don't understand what these scenarios are. I like how this fan gave this explanation. Saying that a ship can make a certain run in N parsecs is a slang expression, much as we say that town is three tanks of gas away. Okay. Yeah, it was an expression. Yeah, like you don't have to take it literally. This is probably my favorite one, though. One fan said, perchance, it's a form of shorthand speech. Sulla might have meant 12 parsecs, meaning a unit of time, and omitted the idea of unit of time. For example, if you get pulled over by an officer and you reply, but officer, I was only doing 35, 
Well, the question comes up. 35 what? Miles per hour, of course. But yeah, when he says 35, we know what he means. Correct. We have to understand what the speaker was referring to. Just like a Gemini astronaut in a docking maneuver might report, we have a 40 delta V. That's 40 feet per second differential velocity. Exactly. Now, if you don't know the science behind that, you would be confused. The idea is both ends of the communication link could be right or wrong depending if you understand the situation. So, (laughs) that comes up to the way we look at how we understand the verbiage in George Lucas's universe. There are so many different ways you can interpret it, and of course you can just keep thinking about it and coming up with all kinds of things, just like just like these people did. Yes. David Gerald went on to interview quite a few people that were on the set of Star Wars, and every one of them said, you know what, we didn't think about it. Well, it was a slip-up. Okay. It makes sense, but no one could really figure out at what point was the line changed. That's one of those things that got muddled through time. I don't know. I didn't research beyond this article and the subsequent follow-up letters, but if any of our listeners know what happened in between scripts, let us know. We're curious. How did this line change that caused so much stir amongst fans in the late 70s? Hi, this is William Stout. You might know me for my Wizards movie poster, My Dinosaurs. And also, a long time ago, I did a Lord of the Rings coloring book. Uh, when I want to hear more about classic science fiction and fantasy, I tune in to Star Pod Log, and I hope you do too. This is Scott Allen Evans, looking back at Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. Uh, some of the characterizations were very strong, and I re- the painted backgrounds were amazing. I was very much looking forward to it. I would have been around 11 when the movie had came out, and I probably saw it a bit after. But I did love it. As we kept watching it, um, I think of it as a deeply flawed masterpiece. Um, There is a lot to like and dislike about the movie. The first thing is the script. The story follows the book more closely than most adaptations have done. The only exceptions being skipping Crick Hollow, The Old Forest, Tom Bombadil, and the Barrow Whites. And that's actually set a precedent. The BBC radio play and Peter Jackson's films also cut the very same stuff, which is unfortunate. Beyond that, it is a faithful adaptation without adding anything of note or making any kind of plot change. The second best thing has to be the voice cast. It is wonderful. Christopher Gard makes a very good Frodo, and William Squire is very strong as Gandalf. And it's also a treat to have the wonderful late John Hurt as Aragorn. Going further down the mixed bag is the depictions of the characters. Gandalf looks great despite wearing blue instead of gray, or perhaps using blue as gray, but you still look at it and you see Gandalf. And Frodo is recognizable as Frodo, despite the fact that some criticize the haircuts looking like the 70s. It was made in the 70s. That's going to happen. The other hobbits look good too, but then when we get to the questionable part of things 
the first place we land is Samwise Gamgee. Sam in this version looks like a bloated cartoon version of Buddy Hackett. I've seen the original Mike Plug character sketches, and how you get from that to Buddy Hackett, I don't know. And then we land on Aragorn. Aragorn is odd looking in this. Some have suggested that he actually looks like a Native American, perhaps using the Man of the West theme, which is, in my opinion, of course, wrong. But then there's the fact that underneath his tunic, he doesn't appear to be wearing any leggings at all, which is particularly odd. And this is also the case with Boromir as well. And Boromir, of course, looks like a cartoon version of a Viking, which nothing in Gondor even comes close to looking like that. The rest of the Fellowship fares pretty well visually, and so does Gollum. Gollum is depicted as a dark green, which may seem odd, but may not be totally inaccurate. There are parts of the book where Gollum, seen from a distance, resembles a dark frog. However, something I think that is wrong is that he's wearing a tiny loincloth. And similar to Jackson's Gollum as well, I think this is actually wrong. Obviously, there's a huge difference between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but in that book, when Bilbo says, what have I got in my pockets, he thinks about what he keeps in his own pockets, implying, of course, that he has pockets and that Gollum may actually be more clothed than we usually see depicted. I also want to talk about Baxi's ring wraiths. The ring wraiths in this movie are very creepy and sometimes more disturbing than what we see in Peter Jackson's movies. The sounds they make, the movements. And then we have the wraith world when Frodo puts on the ring. These are genuinely scary. Perhaps more so than the Photoshop-looking blur of Peter Jackson's Wraith World. Then we get to the rotoscoping, that the film was animated over filmed actors, except that it's incomplete and inconsistent. At times, the live-action film bleeds through in a really weird hybrid that I don't think anybody's actually seen ever since. The general belief is that this, the studio didn't give enough time or money to, to literally finish the job. But it is unusual, it's unique, and it's odd, and some people are really discomforted by looking at that. Speaking of the rotoscoping, I should also mention the oddity of the prologue of the film, the actual opening scene, which is, of course, silhouetted actors against a red background. So black on red, very visually jarring. In fact, whenever I've shown this movie to relatives that really knew nothing about The Lord of the Rings, they always, each time everyone says, 
why is it all red? Is it going to stay this way? Is this what the movie looks like? It's so jarring that I can't imagine a worse introduction to the film. I also have a love-hate relationship with the music of the film by the late Leonard Rosenman. It has a very memorable theme, but pretty much only one that is repeated often and somewhat wears out its welcome. In between that, though, again, back to that Wraith World scene at Weathertop when Frodo puts on the wing, he's particularly good at dissonance, and that works very well and is actually very unnerving. To sum up, I do love this film despite its flaws. And I do wish that United Artists had had enough belief in Ralph to let him finish the film, to give us the sequel. Imagine what Ralph would have done with Shelob, the Siege of Gondor and the Witch King of Angmar, and Mount Doom itself. Would we have gotten the scouring of the Shire? We'll never know. But for what we have, out of love and nostalgia, thank you, Ralph Bakshi. This is Mark Newbold from Fantatrax and Star Wars Insider magazine. And the title of the article that we're going to talk about today is Star Wars Invades TV. Uh, so as this magazine was printed, it was last month CBS aired what they described as one of the most ambitious television spectaculars ever attempted by an American network, which of course now we would we would view that rather differently, I would imagine, given the, uh, the differences in uh, perception of what the holiday special is. So it was written by Rod Warren, Bruce Villanche, Leonard Rips and Pat Prof. Pat Prof was a popular name at the time, uh, worked on lots of different projects. And it ran for two hours and unbelievably it cost over a million dollars and took a month to shoot, which seems incredible uh, looking back at, uh, at what we ended up with. But again, for the time, Star Wars had just come out. It was the hottest property in in the world, really. And also because it was quite unique... Empire had been announced. I think it was mentioned in issue 18 of Starlog just a month before that we were getting Empire. So to come up with a storyline that satisfied two-hour-long TV show, something that would take a month to film, not step on the toes of Empire, but honour what had come in Star Wars was obviously quite difficult. As we all know, everybody's seen the holiday special. If you haven't, go and see it. You've got Mark Hamill back, Carrie Fisher, Peter Mayhew, Harrison Ford, and Anthony Daniels as well as C-3PO. R2 was actually performed by a remote-control robot and an unnamed actor, so Kenny Baker wasn't part of the holiday special. But as we know, the storyline was all about Chewie going back home to Kashyyyk to visit his wife Marla, his dad Itchy, and his son Lumpy, all for Life Day, which is quite relevant right now, as Marvel have just announced here in 2021, a one-shot coming out later this year. There's the Life Day Treasury book as well. So in addition to the classic actors that we know, and there's Vader with James Earl Jones voicing new stuff in sort of cut scenes and stuff from the original movie. Uh, We've got B. Arthur, Harvey Corman, Diane Carroll, Art Carney, and the Jefferson Starship doing the musical uh, acts of Diane Carroll, doing her strangely erotic dance that Chewie's dad finds so alluring. Beatrice Arthur, good few years before she turned up in The Golden Girls, stealing the show, really, as Mina, the night manager. It was a tricky thing. You've got to hit a family audience. You've got to make it feel like Star Wars and feel realistic. But there also had to be some drama in it. And just finding that balance, that mix between the two, meant that the original director, David Acomba, left the show because of artistic differences. Uh, and he was replaced by uh, Steve Binder. He's in voice only, but you do you do see Vader on screen. There's effects reused from the original movie. 
and most famously, and this is now on Disney Plus, we get the first appearance of Boba Fett. So it's the animated story of the Faithful Wookiee segment, the 10 minute segment that uh, is the first time we actually see Boba Fett on screen with a voice. This is the first time Star Wars fans, observant Star Wars fans, would have seen uh, Boba Fett. But the making of the show seemed tremendously difficult. Rick Baker came back. He'd done a bit of work on Star Wars. It was Stuart Freeborn that, that led Star Wars, but Baker did quite a bit, especially the, the reshoot California stuff. So he was back, and he brought in two new faces to the crowd who were known as Lion Man and Baboon Man. These were complicated makeups. It took two and a half hours to put on compared to the rest of the masks, which were literally slip-on masks. But nevertheless, they shot from six one morning till six o'clock the next morning so they were shooting for a day to get these cantina scenes and a lot of the actors were suffering from claustrophobia and feeling the heat take after take and they were literally squeezing their masks to get the air in to the point that one of the masks had dents at the side of its head from trying to get the air in which is incredible um, but it was the lion man and baboon man that suffered the most their makeup applications were pretty intense and they were in that stuff for 24 hours but thankfully, Harvey Corman, who was lovable and much-loved American comedian, who played a, a few alien roles in the show, he kept the cast and crew, kept the atmosphere up, kept everybody bubbling over, until they wrapped the episode and, and it went out in November of 78. But as it says in the article, Artem 3PO would appear in Mickey's birthday special, Mickey Mouse's birthday special. Artem and 3PO were promoting Kenner products on television. And as we know, over the coming years, Donnie and Marie... Muppets, you know, those characters would appear very regularly. And as the article finishes off, it's going to keep fans happy until Empire Strikes Back comes out in 1980. So it's it's good to see that even then, way back when, very conscious that Empire is coming and very aware that there is more Star Wars, even to the point that they knew when it was coming out. This is basically written in 78 and they know it's coming in 1980. So like nowadays, when we're waiting for more Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, Ahsoka, and or Kenobi and everything else when we kind of know when it's coming it was no different 40 years ago this issue if you can find it of Starlog Starlog number 19 February 1979 there's articles about Ralph Bakshi talking about his live his animated Lord of the Rings they're talking about the Superman movie Buck Rogers on television Battlestar Galactica Leonard Nimoy in, in Invasion of the Body Snatchers so it's a fascinating fascinating issue but with the holiday special yeah I think it's a piece of Star Wars history it really, really does not just deserve, but it needs to be on Disney+. Plus. It's part of the whole. I know there's a, a slight element of embarrassment, but it's the Star Wars holiday special. It should be on there. It's uh, It's been fun to look through this issue. It's a very specific look at the holiday special. Just one page of text in the issue, but some great photographs. And um, Akmina and the crowd are on the cover, so well worth looking for. I'm Mark Newbold from Fantatrax and Star Wars Insider. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Prefect underscore timing. But the best place to find me, as always, is head to Fantatrax.com. We're Fantatrax everywhere. If you want to find us, come and say hello. And uh, thanks for indulging me whilst I talk about the Star Wars Holiday Special. Hello, my name is Shane Paul. And here I am with the Space 99 and Base Report. The first letter on the page comes from a Fred King, which talks asks about the eagles in Space 99 and why they are made how they were. And the editor goes into a, quite a good detail about how they had to lift off and the fact that it was, it was good that it, it split in two with one being a command module and one being a utility module. And it also goes into how they actually made the actual physical model 
on the actual Space Noting Noting show. And it was apparently it was made from wood, vacuum coated with a plastic sheet, and and which was amazing. I've never even even heard of that before. And talking of Space Noting Noting nineteen ninety nine, it's actually one of my favourite shows. Uh, of well, that should tell you. Actually, the first season of Space Noting Noting was actually one of my favourite shows. Uh, the first season felt very very very, very raw. I mean, if you look back at it now, you know, in 2021, you can look, it may be a bit slow, but, you know, it's a product of its time, being in, you know, being in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, I'm not going to hold that against it, but, you know, it, it, it had a sense of wonder, darkness, but wonder, wonderment is towards it, where it was a good mix, you know, the second season, on the other hand, it threw that out the window. I mean, I'm just looking at my DVD shelf right now. I have Space 99, 1989 Season 1 on Blu-ray. That's it. I don't have Season 2. And the reason why that is, is because of one man. And that man is Mr. Fred Freckenberger. And I've butchered his name, and I do apologise for that. Talking of Mr. Fred Freikenberger, the next letter actually asks, which comes from Mr. Alan Andrews, talking about how Maya is one of the most beautiful aliens to hit science fiction, and Catherine Shelley is an excellent actress for the part. And the idea of Maya actually came from Mr. Freikenberger, and the answer comes goes into how the fact that Catherine Shell is an incredibly beautiful woman, which I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, she's even beautiful even today, you know, 40 odd years later. But what, something I didn't realise was that the makeup had to be changed four times a day. It took a long time for, the, for them to actually find the right look, which I'm not surprised about. Uh, but the next letter comes in from um, Mr. Tim Condoza. And talks about Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons. And the one thing that bugs him is what does SIG and SAR stand for? And if, and if you don't know anything about Captain Scarlet, uh, then I would suggest you stop this recording right now and actually go and watch it. It is possibly the best Jerry Anderson show ever made. I mean, I'm probably going to get a lot of hate for that because Thunderbirds. But, you know... I don't care. Uh, but yeah, it is for a kid's show. I mean, I was talking about Space 99 being slightly dark. But for a kid's show, a puppet kid's show, I should say. You know, people dying. I don't know how many deaths Captain Scarlet and Mistrons actually had. You know, you know, zombies coming back to life. You know, it was incredibly dark. Um, but it had a... T- at a timeless film, I mean, you know, about, what, 15 years ago, they brought it back as a CGI version, which was absolutely butchered by ITV, uh, which is a, a television ch- channel over here, uh, by putting, by splitting it into two parts and putting it on the Saturday morning kids TV show, Ministry of Mayhem, but that's a story for a different time. Um, but yeah, it was, but it was wonderful. Uh, but going back to, the uh, question that was raised by Tim Condosa, 
uh, SIG stood for Spectrum is Green, and SIR stood for Spectrum is Red. So obviously Spectrum is Green is everything's wonderful, and Spectrum is Red is complete collapse and a catastrophe. Uh, but the most interesting question on the page, in my opinion anyway, is an, a letter from T- Terry Lemons, which states, So what are your impressions of the Star Trek Space Night in Iron Feud? That's the first thing I've heard, that's the first time I've ever heard of it, Terry. But not being alive uh, when Space Night in Iron first aired, because I'm only 40 myself. You know, I've never, never even heard of it, if I'm honest with you. And neither had the person who actually wrote back in the letters page. He actually mentioned uh, the fact that he actually met Nick Tate at the Star Trek convention, and he said that most of them were very friendly and he was very well received. Certainly, he had no feuds with Roddenberry or any of the Trekkies. So, well, I don't know where that came from, but moving on. Uh, and the last letter on the page was uh, from a Mr. Larry G. Coder, which was asking about Fireboy XL5. And I'm going to be totally honest with you. I don't actually know much about Fireboy XL5. Um, it's not a Jerry Anderson show that I actually really ever watched. Um, you know, uh, as a kid, you know, black and white shows never really interest me that much. I know. Bit of sad, I know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the one show that I was kind of sh- shocked about, actually did not appearing uh, on the letters page, was actually the other main black and white Jerry Anderson show, which was Supercar. Um, my go- Supercar and Space 99, for me, will always be linked. Um, back in the day when Space 99 uh, was out on VHS. VHS. Parent, uh, kids, ask your parents. Something we had before DVD and Blu-ray. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, if you bought... Space 1999 on VHS in a certain video store called W.S. Smith here in the UK. Uh, it, at the start of every single tape, it actually had an episode of Supercar on it. First VHS I actually bought of um, Space 1999, I was only ever interested in it because it had Christopher Lee in it. And I've always been a big fan of Christopher Lee. And that was actually, A, my first look at Space 99, Space 1999 and Supercar. Uh, but the only other last thing on the page was talking about uh, future conventions. And they were all over the place uh, in, the, in the following two months of 1978 into 79, which was, uh, which was uh, amazing, especially... In 2021, when we were in, we were in the, these COVID times, I haven't been to a convention in almost two years. But that's a story from another time. Anyway, thank you for listening, and um, I'll catch you soon. Presenting the world's greatest Mego heroes, Mego's new line of 14-inch figures, the world's mightiest mortal, Shazam! 14-inch Mego figures. Gotham's Dark Knight, it's Batman! 14-inch Mego figures. Here's the Man of Steel, Superman. 14-inch Mego figures. 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. 
Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast. I'll be looking at the article "Superman Ready for Takeoff," which began on page fifty-seven, written by Kent Dorfman, not Richard Myers, who wrote the first two articles about the making of Superman the movie and the previous issues that I looked at. Being a fan of the Silver Age of Superman, I'm curious if Kent Dorfman is any or was any relation to Leo Dorfman, who wrote Superman stories in the early to mid 1960s. The article's very first sentence gave the upcoming film's release date as December 10th, 1978, which it was able to meet that deadline. After chronicling the five years of planning, two years of filming, and a fifty million dollar budget, and according to Wikipedia, it went all the way up to fifty-five million dollars. And the article describes it as the most expensive film to date, probably because of the many special effects challenges they had during the creation of the movie. According to Dorfman's article. The premiere was planned as a charity event, which would be attended by Jimmy Carter, who did attend, and he was president at the time. Although not mentioned in the article, the premiere would occur at the Kennedy Center. After listing the cast, it hints at some of the Superman comic book staples that would make an appearance in the film, such as the planet Krypton, the Phantom Zone, and the Fortress of Solitude. Because of the challenges in making the movie, Dorfman quoted director Richard Donner as quipping that he wanted his next film to be about two old ladies in wheelchairs. The article mentions that the challenges of making the Man of Steel fly realistically pushed the movie release from June to December of 1978, and the article hints that Superman's comic book relationship with Lois Lane would be updated for modern audiences. But not too modern, although Lois Lane actress Margot Kidder hinted that they do make love. Of course, if you've seen the movie, you would know that it didn't happen until the sequel. Maybe this was a clue that, for a time, both movies were filmed simultaneously, until deadline pressure forced the cast and crew to focus on completing the first movie. And as the article reminds us, Superman would never. Use his X-ray vision to peek under Lois's clothes, although he did use it to check her lungs to make sure she was not suffering the effects of smoking quite yet. The producer Ilya Salkine bluntly shared what was at stake for the film's release. If it was a hit, he said he would never need to work again, but if it flopped, he would be ruined. On this one-page article, there was also a picture of Marlon Brando and Susanna York. As Jor-El and Lara, as she is holding baby Kal-el, this picture is in black and white. But on the next page, there were two color photos. At the top, there was a still from a scene where Lois first interviews Superman on her patio, and on the bottom, the Man of Steel confronted Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor and the recently deceased Ned Beatty. Who played Luthor's henchman Otis in a scene that took place in Luthor's secret lair? 
The article, although short, hyped the imminent release of the film. Since this issue carried the February 1979 cover date, if it followed the custom of comic book cover dating, it would mean it was released about two months previously, meaning November of 1978, just one month before the premiere of the movie, and maybe, depending on when in November it was released, maybe just a matter of weeks. Some of the quotes by Margot Kidder were interesting. She mentioned Lois preparing an omelet, which Superman cooked with his X-ray eyes, as she described it, as well as Lois chain-smoking. And if you've seen the film, obviously there's no scene of Lois and the Man of Steel cooking together, but perhaps they did film this scene, but it was never used. We did see Lois about to smoke in her scene where she interviews Superman for the first time, and as I mentioned previously, Superman uses his X-ray vision to check her lungs, this brief article did a great job of hyping the movie on the eve of its release. And if I would have read this back in late November, I would have been really excited and looking forward to seeing the Man of Steel fly on screen. If you're interested in checking out my podcast, it's the Superman Fan Podcast, which you can find at the thesupermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. He's faster than a speeding bullet. He's more powerful than a locomotive. He can leap tall buildings in a single bound. Who is he? He's Superman! Now you can see scenes from Superman the movie on a Viewmaster viewer. Just put in a reel and click. You can see Superman, the legendary man of steel, in action. You can invite the whole gang over to see him. Viewmaster viewer and Superman the movie packets sold separately in most photo or toy departments. Starlog Magazine, issue number 20, cover date March 1979. One of my favorite Starlog covers of all time. It is the indisputable, greatest Superman who ever donned the cape. Christopher Reeve, just flying straight at you. I love the picture, too. I mean, it's it's got action, it's got a handsome face, and it, it's got the colors that pop. Oh, Totally. Anything during this time period of Superman, I wanted it as a kid. I remember begging my mother for Superman items. I remember having Superman pillowcases, the Superman Mego doll. I mean, this was an exciting era to be a Superman fan. He, he was everywhere at this time. The movie got so much publicity, and then, of course, it was a great movie. And we all grew up with Superman anyway, so this was just a new incarnation of a hero that we already loved. <laughs> Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Win a date with Darth Vader. Oh boy. Lucasfilm Limited, home of the official Star Wars fan club, has announced a cartoon contest in connection with the award-winning film and its sequel, The Empire Strikes Back. So get this, you have to create a cartoon and then send it to the publishers of Bantha Tracks, the Star Wars Club newsletter. The first prize winner will get an all-expenses-paid trip for two to England and visit EMI Elstree Studios, where the, where the Empire Strikes Back is being filmed. Oh, my. That's insane, isn't it? You draw a cartoon and send it in. And win that. I mean, is that an epic prize or what? It sounds cool. I mean, so, so the prize is a date with Darth Vader, though? That's what they said? 
<laughs> well, you get to see the filming of Empire Strikes Back. That's the title of it, When a Date with Darth Vader. Oh, okay. See, see the Empire Strikes Back. Okay, that's good. The okay. filming of it, yeah. Uh, second place, though, is a trip to the gala American premiere of the film. Another great prize, just for making a cartoon. That sounds pretty good. Gort retires, found in old age garage. Gort, the robot who co-starred with Michael Rennie in the 1951 science fiction classic The Day the Earth Stood Still, was recently discovered by a freelance writer, Steve Rubin, languishing in a Bel Air, California garage. The eight-foot fiberglass statue was used in only a few scenes from the film, much in the same way the hollow version of R2-D2 was used in Star Wars for stationary shots. Okay, this is something that was common, I'd say, from the mid-70s and back, is that they would make these awesome either mannequins or props for movies, and they would neglect them, either toss them away or just forget about them. Can you imagine an original Gort from The Day the Earth Stood Still who's just tossed into someone's garage? Well, it had to go somewhere, and I guess like, like no one in Hollywood wanted it, so someone just took it. But but yeah, it's different now because, well, now we think like this might be valuable someday, so they try to keep everything. Oh yeah, nothing, nothing is thrown away now. Everything is going to be either saved or auctioned off. But if you want to talk about one of the most iconic figures in all of science fiction, Gort is going to be in the top five. So I'm glad that someone was able to find it and salvage it. Cylon cheer for Memphis kids. Recently, young patients at the St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, were visited by an unusual star. Now, oftentimes when we think of celebrity visits to hospitals, it's going to be someone in movies or television. But us nerds, we often think about the 501st or Rebel Legion members, other costuming groups. That has been the norm in the past decade or so. But this time... Someone from Universal Studios sent a Cylon to visit children. Oh, well, the kids must have loved that. <laughs> I mean, especially if he had the moving eye, the little red light going across. Totally. And this, they said at the time, this was a 65-pound, $3,000 costume. Wow. Had to take a big guy to be able to wear it then. Yes. And walk around in it. Totally. Future Conventions Alright, let's talk about some of the conventions that were advertised in Starlog that were popular of this era. Chattacon 4 Chattanooga, Tennessee, January 5th through 7th, 1979 That con's been going around a long time. I mean, it's still, it's still going on. Amazing. How about this? The Fantasy Symposium out of San, San Jose, California, February 15th through 18th. QuakeCon, San Francisco, California. Okay, we know that San Francisco is known for earthquakes. Do you really have to name the con QuakeCon? <laughs> yeah, very strange. <laughs> Actually, it sounds like it might attract more people who aren't from the area. Because people in the area wouldn't want to go. <laughs> AggieCon 10, Texas A&M University, March 29th through April 1st. Hi, this is Gary. And this is Joe. 
And we're from the American Sci-Fi Classics Track. Don't forget to check out our track room in the basement of the Marriott while you're at DragonCon on Labor Day weekend. And in the meantime, get ready for more exciting programming from Starpod Log. They have the awesome stuff. All, only the awesome stuff. Hello, everyone. My name is Steve Eunice from supermanhomepage.com. And I am Michael Bailey, uh, also a contributor from supermanhomepage.com, but also the, the person that runs the Fortress of Bailey-Tude podcasting network. And we are here today to talk about the article written by Richard Myers titled Superman the Movie. <laughs> Man, I, I have had this magazine for since forever, yeah. uh, because a couple of years ago, about five or six years ago, maybe ten, time has no meaning anymore, uh, <laughs> I tracked down like every single magazine, like Newsweek, Starlog, right. like the little pop-up sci-fi mags that, that were prevalent in the late 70s, just anything that had to do with Superman the movie, mm-hmm. I bought. So, uh, But I had not read the article until this but before we get into looking at the article itself michael um do you recall the first time you saw superman the movie i mean you're a little bit younger than me so maybe uh it probably wasn't in the cinema it was not in the cinema um okay or the theater as you call it or or the movies or the theater whatever (laughs) the the expensive place is what we call it now uh you know memory lies to you Mm. Uh, so I have two very clear memories of watching it when I was younger. Uh, I do have a vivid memory, and I had to be like two or three when this happened. This had to wow. be when either the movie was coming out or when it was like in a re-release. Mm-hmm. But it's when we lived in a certain place. Uh, I remember seeing an ad on TV for the movie. Mm-hmm. But... As far as seeing the movie, it was either when I was five visiting my grandparents because my my dad's parents would, uh, especially my grandfather, he loved to tape movies. Yeah. So I know he taped Superman the movie off of HBO, uh, and that was when I had the chicken pox. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was either then or we watched it as a family on HBO at home. Mm-hmm. But that would have been right around the same time period. But I don't know which one was first. Right. Yeah, well, I I remember seeing Superman 2 in the theatre, thanks to my uncle taking a bunch of my, me and my cousins. But um, Superman the movie came out in 1978, as we all know. I would have been about uh, seven at the time. But I don't think I saw it in the theatre. I think, for me, it would have been a year later or two years later on TV. And I do have a recollection of watching it with the extended version, you know, with all the the extras that were put in for the TV cut, you know, with like the Girl Scouts walking past the Hollywood sign and uh, (laughs) all those kinds of things that we now know weren't in the theatrical cut. And I vividly remember, you know, it was in a neat of an evening on, you know, watching it on TV and then afterwards being told, all right, movie's over, go to bed and, and like running through the hallway up the stairs to bed with my arms thrust out in front of me, pretending I could fly. It just had that much of an impact on me even way back then. (laughs) <laughs> oh man yeah, I, I, I had to be the same I, I remember the one thing I always tried to do as a kid that never worked out uh, you know a lot of kids tried to like tie a towel around mm. their neck yeah. I always tried to tuck it into my shirt because right. that's what it looked like on the screen a bit more authentic um, and it would never stay and it would be like years before I realized it's because 
unlike Christopher Reeve, I didn't have loops that were went around my arms to keep the cape in place. Uh, well, there you go. All right, well, let's look into this uh, article written by Richard Myers. Uh, the introduction tells us that Starlog was there right throughout the process of making Superman the movie, you know, from the beginning with the Salkinds, through, you know, searching for an actor to play Superman and and uh, all through the process because, wow, reading this article, even way back then, they had all the goss, all the inside knowledge on just the trauma and, and the, the hardship that this movie went through to get made. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I remember... There was another article that was in Comic Scene, mm-hmm. I believe, or it might have been a, like a later Starlog that w- that I read like in the '90s that had Richard Donner kind of talking about everything, uh, and it was an article from the '80s. And then you know all the documentaries and the such that came on the DVDs, you know, like really revealed how tumultuous the the production process was but like you i'm reading this i'm like they knew all this in 1978 if if you read starlog you knew what was going on yeah because i mean even i mean richard donner recently passed away at age 91 but even up until a couple of years ago he was still being interviewed about his relationship with the salkinds and you know and all the troubles with making of the movie and being you know fired before the uh, Superman 2 could be finished and all those kinds of things. So even up until this day, it, the, the information that's in this article is still being um, still of interest to people and, and uh, you know, treated like it's new material for a lot of fans. Yeah, and, and I guess that just proves how, how do I want to say this? Back in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s, if you weren't reading these magazines, you had no idea any of this was going on. So true. And it's kind of funny that there is no really, like, new information about this movie. Like, between this article, which actually spells out a lot, Mm -hmm. and, like, and and if you went, like, the technical side, you could have read, like, the Making of Superman book. Yes. Which went into the production and went into, like, from what I remember of reading that book, like, anecdotes from the set as well. Yeah. So it's it's like if if you had access to all of that, you knew what was going on. But now it is so much easier to gain access to all of that. Yeah. So they were, you know, uh, Richard Myers himself or Starlog's people must have really had people on the ground there uh, in London uh, during the whole process of the filming to be getting all this information, which was really impressive when you think about it, uh, considering the time. But uh, the first. Uh, chapter, if you like, of his of his article uh, talks about the troubled beginnings of making the Superman film um, and how uh, director Hamilton was in on the, mm-hmm. on the on the movie before Richard Donner. Yeah, and they go into the tax exile stuff. Yep, uh, tax difficulties they call it, but <laughs> but it's just like again that was something that I didn't learn about until the two thousand one. DVD mm-hmm. uh, special or featurette or whatever you want to want to call it, and the fact that it goes into like the the initial expenditure of thirty million dollars, I thought it was especially interesting that he called it the first of a two part four hour homage to the phenomenon known as Superman, because at that time, I, if I'm remembering correctly, the Salkinds were pushing to basically have it that they could make both movies, make both movies and then put them on TV as like a mini series. Mm. Um, which 
eventually they kind of did <laughs> just never all in the same week. But yeah, going through those troubled beginnings, mentioning Guy Hamilton, uh, I'm sure these set photos and the, the, the pictures that are in this article were pretty exciting as well to people that didn't have access to it. And the very next thing Donner talks about is how Tom Mankiewicz is solely responsible for his Superman script. Yeah, I mean, he, he does, um, you know, talk about Mario Espuzo's, you know, good script and that uh, Robert Benton and Leslie Newman uh, crafted a different aura, but uh, he definitely talks about the fact that Mankiewicz really was um, the, the, you know, solely responsible for his Superman script because the, the total, I mean, the, the feel of the movie would have been completely different uh, with, you know, humour and slapstick and stuff that, you know, obviously was not what Donner envisaged when he was looking at making uh, Superman the movie and, and taking the, the, the material a lot more seriously than Guy Hamilton appeared to be doing uh, originally. And I've only ever heard Donner talk about the Kojak thing mm-hmm. uh, because Donner will, in, in just about every interview I've ever seen, will talk about the fact that Kojak was, there was a Kojak cameo yeah, where like Superman flies down yeah. looking for Superman. But here Reeve tells the story. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, so it's more than one. It, it, it's it's like it's like suddenly we're Tom Hanks in the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> and we've stumbled across something. Uh, so funny, and it, it's interesting. Uh, in this article, uh, Richard Donner says, "My head of special effects, Colin Chilvers, will come out of this picture a new special effects star." And, and how true, because the the only. Academy Award that this film won was for Colin Chilvers doing the special effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and and he, it, you're absolutely right. He did come out as a, as kind of a, a star uh, in that in that field. Uh, Superman the movie was robbed at the Academy Awards in certain categories, yeah, but. Yeah. But just, you know, talking about Derek Metting's miniatures, John Barry's set, Jeffrey Unsworth's photography, Donner is really good at giving other people credit. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, like, I've always had a lot of respect for him, but, like, this article kind of put forth to me that as much as Donner is like, this is my movie, he is really the type of, of leader that's like, I'm only as good as the people I surround myself with. Mm. So he he is really quick to give Unsworth and Barry and Meddings and Chilvers and John Williams, which comes up later in the article, like the credit of like, you know, these are the guys that made it happen. I just kind of rallied the forces. Yeah, and he says the same thing about the actors, you know, with Margot Kidder, Gene Hackman, and others, um, and then talks about Christopher Reeve, and he says, you know, often when people ask me how, where I found him, he says, I didn't find him, God gave him to me. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. Yeah, and that's something he would repeat again and again and again uh, in inter- in different interviews. Mm. So uh, it's just, I, I'm just so, like, enamored of him as a person. Because uh, you can kind of hear that gruff, kind of you know uh i call it a smoke filled voice yeah uh so but then he starts going into the fact just right on front street the the directors were trying to fire me i mean the producers were trying to fire me 
and that he didn't get along with them at all. Yeah, he doesn't pull any punches when he's talking about it. But he says he does kind of set the record straight here a little bit, saying that he got along with the Salkinds all right, but it was Pierre Spengler who was the problem. Yeah, he, I like this. He says, I told him to his face that the film was too big for him and he wouldn't face up to that responsibility. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay. Put a man in his place. Yeah, uh, well... Donner, you see, the thing the thing about Donner is that he was in his 40s when he made this film. Yeah. He wasn't a kid. No, that's right. So he wasn't going to let somebody put... And, like, a, a couple of friends of mine did a retrospective of his career. And, he, you know, by this point, he had done The Omen, but he had done countless TV episodes and mm. TV movies. So he, he knew what he was doing, and Spangler... I, I, I'm not saying anything bad against the Salkinds or, or Spangler just in general, but they, it didn't seem like they had the experience to make this major special effects film. Mm. And it was really Donner that made it work. Yeah, and then in the next chapter of the article talks about the compromise that they came to in regards to getting Richard Lester involved mm-hmm. um, and giving him... A, a, you know, putting him in as a third producer. Um, and then, as we know, eventually, um, Lester came on board as the director for Superman 2 once they did give Donna his marching orders. And he came in and refilmed a lot of Superman 2 to have that credit as director for the sequel. But uh, here he's come on board, I guess, as a, probably a little bit of a middleman. Yeah, a buffer. Uh, between Spangler and Donner, mm. which probably worked out for the best. And and to Donner's credit, he he doesn't like talking about uh, Lester Superman two, but when it came to Superman the movie, it seemed like he had nothing but good things to say about him. Yeah, like they had a conversation, and 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 Lester was was very upfront with him, saying, "I'm not here to take over." Just tell me what you need help with. And he's like, just talk to them through, you know, I'll talk to you through you. And it seemed like that kind of mitigated a lot of the problems they were having. Then in the article, they talk about the delays uh, for the film. And it was supposed to originally um, have a December 1977, um, or was it early 1978, um, mm-hmm. release date. And they realized pretty quickly that they weren't going to make that deadline. No, it was uh, apparently the premiere deadline was going to be March 1978 at first, and it's just like wow, <laughs> that 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 didn't happen. Um, <laughs> then Charles Greenlaw, uh, a Warner Brothers executive, comes in, and he's just basically like, they weren't ready, and we basically gave them more money so that they could make this the best they could. <laughs> Well, because originally Which, Warner Brothers really didn't want to have much to do with this movie. They were like, "Yeah, okay, no. Salkinds, you take it on board. We don't, you know, we're not, we're happy to, to, you know, give you access to the to the product to the to the property." But then I think um, Warner Brothers, you know, did make a deal uh, to get extra, put extra money in, and they had more of a, a say in the film and more of a, I, I guess, a um, a proportion of the field of the film. Yeah, they put up, according to Greenlaw, they put up an additional $8 million, which in 1978, that's a massive amount of money to, mm. to pump into a movie. Uh, and, and, you know, reading this article, I haven't thought about this in years. This movie is like 
full of special effects. Oh. I think it's because they make it look so real that you don't think about it. But they go through it. Krypton exploding, the Fortress of Solitude rising, Jor-El speaking from beyond the grave, the Hoover Dam bursting, the Golden Gate Bridge collapse, and just Superman flying in general. Yeah, well, and just like, yeah there were a lot of set pieces. Yeah, big time. And, and speaking about the, the effects, uh, the next section of the article here in Starlog is the effects perfection uh, section of the article, which talks about uh, Roy Field and the optical department, you know, the the challenges they had with making Superman fly in the front projection and, and, and just all the different little things that they tried to come up with to get that flying effect to look real, you know, with miniatures and all these other different things that just weren't working out for the longest time. Yeah, I like that he uh, he takes a little shot at, like, John Dykstra. Uh, he says, oh, this movie makes Trumbull and Dykstra looks like kittens. <laughs> Uh, you know, I love their work, but they maneuvered ships and lights and apparitions. Collins worked with a person. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, not being mean, but still going. We did it better. Yeah, and and the, you know the the article does you know reiterate the fact that they really were pushing the techniques that were available at the time and inventing new techniques for the visual effects. You know, mm-hmm. we forget in this day and age with the computer graphics that we have and just the, you know, the, the amount of ability that we're able to do things within the computer. You know, this is pre-CGI days. They, you know, they had to do miniatures. They had to do, you know, physical, practical effects. And the, those effects still stand up today. Yeah, and just the, the flying is what they spend a lot of the time on. They do talk about the miniatures and the and the sets and such. But the fact that they had to develop a front projection system that would look real mm-hmm. and wasn't just and this is nothing against, you know, George Reeves and the special effects from the Adventures of Superman, because for the fifties that was groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. But in nineteen seventy eight, especially after Star Wars and and Jaws and those types of movies, you couldn't put a dude on a glass table. Yeah. And have images going by him, behind him. You had to make it look real. And they mentioned at one point in the article that basically for like almost, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but for months, Reeve just flew. Mm -hmm. He had no lines. He just flew. (laughs) Looking down, he said, at a bunch of guys drinking tea and having lunch, and he's just... 35 feet up in the air, you know, looking left. It's crazy. It's crazy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, amazing technology that they, they built for those days. And, uh, you know, the the fact that he says, you know, Superman doesn't just walk off stage. He always flies off stage. He always flies off mm-hmm. stage. You know, it's not just simple, you know, come in, come out kind of system. They've got a, you know, just something as simple as, you know, the, the, the main character entering a scene is, you know, so technical. Yeah, and I think it's because they got the right people. Like, you know, it, it talks about the miniatures that Derek Meddings did. Uh, and he, you know, they, they go through his, his uh, resume of working on the, Thunderbo- the Thunderbirds, uh, Jerry Anderson TV series, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, and the yet-to-be-released Moonraker. Uh, not really considered the best of the Bond films, from what I understand. Uh, but he talks about the fact that 
you know, the the Golden Gate sequence, there was one full-scale section of the bridge which they built on an airfield that was 200 feet long, a 50-foot miniature, and then a, and a final 30-foot long that where they staged the actual automobile smash. I would never have guessed that any of those were miniatures. Yeah. Watching the film. So true. So, uh, yeah, really impressive. Um, and all this was done at Pinewood's A stage in Pinewood Studio in England, and uh, it was uh, really impressive what they were able to do. Uh, he says, uh, Roy Field declares, we, were, we are very proud of breaking the traditional blue backing system where they said you mm-hmm. could have blue in the foreground because it would appear disappear on film. We got past that naturally, but we also had to take tremendously strict controls on the negatives because Superman's costume is almost is also almost all blue. Yeah, and that's why I remember as a kid watching the film, there were certain shots where, God, that looks like a really light blue mm. Superman. Now they fixed yeah. that. Uh, yeah, and now they fixed that in recent years yeah. with the uh, with the, the, the more recent uh, releases of it, and it, it does look a lot better. But <laughs> part of me is nostalgic for the teal because yeah. <laughs> it's what I remember <laughs> as a kid. Now, the next section of this article is titled The Eyes Have It. And um, in here we have, you know, the, the proof of uh, Donna's leadership, um, you know, and, and the, the tenacity of Colin Chilvers and, and Dennis Coop, the, the, you know, for the cinema, cinematography. And, you know, Donna's just stressing about the, the flying feature and, and, and how um, Christopher Reeve really embodied that whole process of flying. Yeah, he talks about the fact that Christopher Reeve, as a pilot, had a sense of what what flying would be like, basically, mm-hmm. and where he looks. That was the thing that struck me is is you know I, I watched the extended version uh, recently, and Reeve never just stares ahead and flies, like. You always see, even if he's just kind of facing the camera, he's always kind of looking around and, you know, where, when he banks, he doesn't just turn, he turns his whole body. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I think as much as we talk about Reeves, like the way he played the character, I don't think people give him enough credit for the physicality that he brought to the character that just another actor may not have done. And we've seen in... Certain other live-action Superman since then, not everybody puts that kind of thought into it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, here in this article, they talk about why doesn't it look good when a stuntman does it? You know, why is it so good when Christopher Reeve does it? Because initially they had they had the effects down, they had it, but they just had a stuntman in there, you know, and you've seen it in the making of movies and um, documentaries and things, where the stuntman is in place and the effects are there, but he just doesn't have the presence to deliver the flying ability and it, mm-hmm. until christopher reeve stepped in into that exact same role um and and because being a pilot he knew about banking and turning and tilting and as he said moving his head and in the article it talks about it all happens in the eyes um it really you know he really was just the perfect person for the time with the yep. effects that they had and even in this article reeve explains that you know a lot of the time he's you know, 30 feet off the floor, looking at an English crew reading racing forms or drinking tea, a lot of them <laughs> are staring bored, you know, bored technicians. 
uh, funny-looking camera machines, and yet he's got to try to, you know, physically embody the emotions and whatever else is going through at the time, you know, hanging from this from these uh, harnesses and things. Yeah, I just, you know, there's also, and this is from a later thing of of, of him and Margot Kidder kind of arguing and bickering at times because <laughs> uh, he wanted to stay in character and she had a book down her blouse, uh, <laughs> you know, between shots and all that. Um, which is just endearing, but no, I, I just, I really like that. It's not just Donner being interviewed in this article that they are talking to Reeve as well. I'm kind of wondering how that, how that press worked out, uh, if they were together, because it seems like Donner and Reeve are together during this interview. Yeah. Well, they make it sound that way and, uh, whether they were conducted at different times or not, it would be interesting to see, but it does seem like that they were there in the same room, the way this is written, which is, Really impressive because it comes across as being uh, almost conversational. Yeah, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why I liked this article so much is that it delivers a lot of information, but it's got a real narrative to it, mm. which sometimes these articles don't, and sometimes interviews don't. No, uh, but it's it, you know he the you know the writer really you know he starts at the beginning, he goes through the whole process talks about all the little things. You know, he doesn't really talk about, like, the other actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, though Donner, as you said, mentioned them. Uh, and, you know, and, and my favorite part was the talk of the flying, but it just seems like this article is not only giving you information, it's selling you on the movie in a way that an article like this really shouldn't, almost, maybe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. It's, it, it's not a puff piece, but it really does sell the movie. <laughs> It does really well, and I was impressed with the, uh, I think it's the final part of the article when talking about the miniature magic, where they talk about mm-hmm. bringing in Derek Meddings, um, and you know, they need, because the, you know, they were so far behind, and, and some of these miniatures just weren't in place, and he just like came on board and just straight away just took over kind of thing, and you know, got the Golden Gate Bridge done, the Hoover Dam collapse, the car crashes, the tugboats, you know, the floods, all that kind of stuff, just came in, got it done. And, you know, some of these set pieces, these little miniatures, whilst, you know, the Hoover Dam, the, you know, the, the water obviously is one element that you cannot miniaturize. And so in some of those flooding scenes, you know, you can tell that they're miniatures for the most part. Jeez, it's impressive. Yeah. I mean, even the Hoover Dam falling apart itself, even though there's water involved in that is impressive. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that, again, Donner is right. You know, it doesn't look like a miniature. Like you're right, the flooding scenes. Yeah, you can't you can't fake a you can't miniaturize a, a river basically. No. You know, it's it's going to look like what it's going to look like. The water molecules are always going to be larger than the little you know things that they're uh, going through. Yeah, but it's just everything else about it. And like I said before, that Golden Gate scene that doesn't look like miniatures. Um, in the extended cut, the Hollywood sign. Eh. <laughs> yeah. That's a little dodgy, but I think, to be fair, that wasn't a shot Donner wanted in the film, anyways, because he didn't put it in the he didn't put it in the film, no, uh, even in the special edition. So, uh, but that's getting into a whole cantankerous thing about the TV version, which we don't have time for. <laughs> and uh, towards the end of the article, pretty much at the very end of the article, Donner talks about John Williams' score, and while you know Christopher Reeve here obviously says in the article finished up 
on Superman in September of 1978. From there on, it went on to the, the scoring process. And, you know, the maestro that is John Williams comes on board. And so much of why Superman the movie works is because of the musical score. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. You, It's not like he did one theme. No. You know, he did a love theme. He did a march. He did the Krypton theme. The he did the Smallville. Thing. You know, the the march of the villains. Like, you can listen to that score on its own, but I can't... It, it's like imagining the first Star Wars film without his score. That, that movie works as well as it does, yeah. mainly because of the music. So... And Donner, you know, he says it's not a classical drift and it's not spacey, but it's all of that and more. And that's the best way to describe it. So true. And the article finishes up like the movie does, talking about the final scene of the film where Christopher Reeve looks directly at his viewers as if to say, thanks for watching. And it says he then a barely perceptible wink. The camera draws back and he flies into the sunset. Uh, don't know about the wink, but... Maybe like a he flies kind of away from the sunset. Yeah, that's so true. But uh, look, it, that is you know it's a fitting way to end both the movie and the article talking about mm-hmm. Christopher Reeve smiling at the audience. Um, and you know we do know that obviously work then went on to finish off Superman two and all the uh, the problems and the and the um, and the disasters that were some of the uh, sequels that came after that. But for an article of its time the, here in March nineteen seventy nine. Uh, writing about the trials and tribulations of Superman the movie. Uh, this is a really impressive article that brought so much back to, to mind that I need, not hadn't forgotten, but that you know wasn't really for, forefront in my mind when thinking about the, the making of this movie, which is in of, of itself a story behind the story. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's one thing uh, right before the article goes to the continued onto page 74 is there's a whole page of Superman movie merchandise. Yeah. I, I have like all the books, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, those printings, like the official quiz book and the making of and last son of Krypton. I've tried to find the rest of this. They're too expensive. Uh, you know, like, like the, the Superman, uh, portfolio, for example, which was originally seven ninety five. I haven't seen that thing under $200 on eBay. Wow. Um, yeah, it's just like, Oh, to go back. It's like some people would go back in time and like want to witness historical things. I want to go back in time to buy this stuff cheap. <laughs> well, I'm interested in the telephone and address book. I never even seen that in the in in physical uh, in 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 the, in, the, in the life in real life at two dollars fifty, and it's got Lois Lane's phone number in there. Yeah, Four hundred listings. That's wow. that's pretty amazing. Um, I wonder if that was supposed to go with the phone that came out around this time. Mm. God, this makes me nostalgic for things that I wasn't old enough to be nostalgic for, but still yet feel that just the same. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, before we finish off, Michael, um, you and I, we do a weekly live show for the Superman homepage uh, where we talk about Superman for an hour and uh, we pretty much touch on all the news. And we've been doing that uh, for a long time now and uh, we look forward forward to continuing on that tradition for a while to come as well oh yeah we're coming up almost on the 10-year mark of doing a live weekly show that people can participate in so that's uh we outlasted the new 52 so there's that 
So, yeah, but make sure, everybody, if you're uh, listening to this and you want to hear more from Michael and I, check out supermanhomepage.com. Uh, as I said, we do a live weekly show on Monday nights at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, we uh, look forward to having new people come and join us. So let's turn the microphone over to Hamish, a lifelong Superman fan, to hear what his experience was like watching the film. In December of 1978, at its official first release, I was only three years old. It's all on the edge of my memory, but I do remember liking Superman. This was my mom's doing, her and my aunt. Two of seven kids, she's told me many times how they all used to run home after school and fight for positions around the TV to watch George Reeves on the 50s TV show. I'd seen some of those reruns by the time the movie came out, and some of the Kirk Allen serials as well. I'm not sure when we actually went to see the movie, but distributions were different back then. I know it was released in December, but not to all markets, and I think it was well into the summer of 79, after my fourth birthday, that we went to see it at the Colonial Drive-In in Hendersonville, Tennessee. I remember squabbling with my sister over snacks and that terrible sound from the speaker. It was terribly hard to hear from the back seat. But mostly I remember being bored. I mean, okay, here's a white-haired old man wearing a Superman symbol, but no Superman. A lot of farm stuff and talking. Pretty boring for a hyper four-year-old. This was a very long movie and still a lot of talking. But suddenly there was this big fanfare. And there he was, in blue and red, flying towards me on that enormous screen. I remember being transfixed. I was paralyzed. I was... Wait, what? The screen went dark. Intermission. Those were still a thing. What seemed an interminable wait, dragged to the bathroom by my poor harried mother. More squabbles with my sister and arguing over snacks and at the uh, concession stand. But finally, more movie. I remember being stupefied every moment Chris was on screen in that suit. My coloring books and comic books were brought to very real life. He could fly, really fly. Not just jump off a trampoline or turn into a cartoon. And he saved a train. I loved trains. So that scene especially made me happy. My parents probably less so because I was an observant child and I knew as much about trains as Superman and wanted to know how his body could have kept it on the rails. After all, my model trains derailed constantly, so I'd probably ask that question for months, maybe years. But from that point on, I was hooked. Anything Superman I wanted. Shoes, shirts, sheets, band-aids even. Everything I had had Superman on it. My poor mom made the mistake of seeing that there was a Saturday morning cartoon called Super Friends and promised to wake me up for it, just in case it had Superman. Up until then, I got up when I felt ready and had only seen a few later morning cartoons. But Super Friends aired at 7 a.m. on Saturdays and would for the next five years. And I was thrilled, of course, to discover it did feature Superman. And boy, there would be hell to pay if I missed it even once, because no one woke me up for it. I'm sure my dad was fairly peeved at losing his chance to sleep in on Saturdays. Ultimately, I think they made so many correct choices in this film. It's considered the grandfather of all superhero films, the standard, to live up to for a reason. Richard Donner had a big banner of Superman holding up a sign that said, Verisimilitude, which means the appearance of being real. That's what they achieved, especially to a four-year-old boy, it was real. I think it unlocked my imagination for my whole life. I was always a dreamer, always fantasizing about flying away. Anytime I was stuck in school or church or any place boring, I wish I could use heat vision to cause a distraction, speed behind something, and change into my own super suit and fly off to an adventure. 
that's what Christopher Reeve, Richard Donner, and the others here did for their legacy. They made me believe that Superman was real and that a man could fly. Okay, we're going to end the program by talking about one of the ads at the end of the magazine. This was actually on the back cover. Now, I was a wrestling fan as a kid. This is so curious because I got into wrestling in the early 80s. So I had no idea who superstar Billy Graham was until he made the comeback in WWF. This is from 1979, so this was at the peak of superstar Billy Graham's career. It's a poster. It's very curious looking. Uh, it's a highly tanned man with blonde hair, and it's a painting of him running towards the viewer, but he's floating in outer space with a tiger next to him. And it just says superstar. It's the text that's so bizarre about this. Who is Superstar? For those of you who may not know, Superstar Billy Graham is the former heavyweight wrestling champion of the world and probably the most colorful and exciting wrestler of all time, not to mention one of the greatest box office attractions in the history of the sport. So up until now, not even his most ardent fans knew of Superstar's interest in astronomy and science fiction. Having always wanted to go into outer space and not willing to wait for modern technology, he asked artist Bonnie Bingaman to put him there. Beautifully rendered in oils and reproduced in high-quality, coated paper, this giant 24 by 36 poster is unique in that it is the first science fiction poster of a major sports figure in America. This fact ensures the poster as a true collector's item. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're really pumping this up. So I, I never knew there, there there was a wrestler called Superstar Billy Graham. There sure was. And so I remember watching wrestling with my father. And when he came back into the WWF, they, his theme music was Jesus Christ Superstar. And he came in. Oh, my dad was all excited. He goes, that's Superstar. I was like. Who is he? I don't, he was, he's an old man. He's like, he used to be the Hulk Hogan of the 70s. And when you look at him, he kind of does look like Hulk Hogan. Long blonde hair, dark tan. Or you could say Hulk Hogan looks like him. Totally. Yes, yeah. Uh, but he used to be the champion of the 70s. So uh, I, I think the verbiage is so funny that even the most ardent fans don't know about how much Superstar loves outer space and wants to go into outer space like <laughs> and and the poster him just running in outer space with a giant cat i don't see what the cat has to do with anything but well, he's not on earth yes. it's a space background <laughs> it's an interesting picture yes i mean yeah. it's it's it is good art and so for his fans they would probably like that i i guess so yeah it's so just, you never bought this poster then never I've never even seen it before. I asked my brother, too, who's a hardcore wrestling collector, and he goes, you never see that anywhere. So, I mean, it it legitimately is a collector's item, and it was only five ninety five plus $1 for postage and handling. Oh, wow. Even postage and handling was cheaper back then. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. And join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. nanu, nanu.